thank you very much, Natasha, for the introduction. And uh, it is really a pleasure to be today with you all uh, talking about this case. I am um, um, honored by the presence of Professor Fior Miron here in the room as well, um, and uh, to be discussing um, today this matter with you all. Uh, irreplaceable. Julian Hoffman, I don't know how many of you have read the book, but he warned us of those places where the meaning of loss is real, visceral, and imminent. Now, in the last years, I have been involved with such worlds um, across the globe as an English qualified barrister, um, arguing in front of constitutional courts and international organs uh, on the meaning of the word imminent uh, and the meaning of the word life in environmental degradation and climate change cases. Now, my journey has been humbling because of what I found um, and what those forests, rivers, islands, territories, and peoples protecting those worlds, our world, is talking. Now, today I'm going to speak about international courts, uh, organs, and climate change mitigation, and in particular about the Torres Strait Islanders case. Yet I need to flag um, two things in connection to international law and domestic law. Number one, they don't exist in two parallel worlds. So you will see that I will make some references to domestic case law. Um, and uh, my first point is that, you know, sometimes there is this tendency to see uh, international law and domestic law as separate. Uh, but uh, rather, I, I would point out that there is um, an ongoing interaction and should be a constant uh, interaction as we will be seeing in what ways that is helping. Second, in connection to that, um, let's not forget that domestic judgments are subsidiary means for the determination of rules of law um, as per Article 38 of the ICJ statute, which set out uh, where are the sources in international law. So having made that first point, I'd like to tell you how am I going to spend the time now in my talk. Um, I divide this in four sections. First, by way of introduction, I want to contextualize the Torres Strait case. Um, second, I will make some preliminary um, remarks, which I think are um, important to keep in mind. Third, I will go into the key aspects of the case, probably seven. They are not all, all of them, but there are some of the key issues in the case. And finally, I will attempt to draw some conclusions. So context, can we go to the first slide, please? Uh, the Torres Strait case cannot be explained, particularly uh, the legal issues there, if we don't go back a bit to the genesis of that. Um, and I can tell you that um, the direct predecessor of the Torres Strait case is the Sheila versus United States of America. Now, this is a case that was brought uh, before an Inuit population. Uh, all the names were individualized. So it was not a group litigation, it was rather a, a human rights case before the Inter-American system. Uh, this was filed before the Commission on Human Rights. Now, pay attention to the year. This is 2005. Uh, the case argued uh, among other things, that uh, nowhere on Earth has global warming had been a more severe impact on the Arctic. Um, the person that brought the case, Sheila here, one of the first people to have reframed uh, climate change as a human rights issue. 
In fact, she was she was uh, nominated uh, for her work uh, eventually to the Nobel Nobel uh, Peace Prize, um, and I believe to the Right Livelihood Award. Now, the case uh, what the case alleged was the global warming had already visibly transformed the Arctic, uh, altering land conditions, making the weather of the Arctic increasingly unpredictable. With Inuit elders who have long experience in reading the weather, reporting various changes in weather patterns in different areas of the Arctic. It also denounced decreasing water levels in lakes and rivers and producing changes in the location, characteristics, and health of plant and animal species. Um, moreover, also natural drinking water sources have become scarcer, according to the complainant, and less drinkable harm in Inuit health. And they argue that this was a result of the combined effects of the decrease in the snowfall, permafrost melts, the sudden early melts, erosion, rising temperatures, and changing winds. Now, this case was brought under the American Declaration uh, of the Rights and Duties of Men. Um, it was dismissed uh, at the outset. So the case didn't reach any um, procedural stages within the commission. It was simply dismissed by the commission before it was uh, even registered. Now, um, I read this, this um, the pleadings of the case very attentively. In fact, uh, these are, were about 150 pages of extremely detailed submissions on the part of the complainants. Now, they, they failed in 2005. Um, now, if you are interested on the analysis, legal analysis of that, you are invited to read um, a chapter I recently published in a book by Bickle co called Climate Change and Global Perspectives. Now, Sheila asked, uh, when she was asked, what do you most want people to understand with the case? She said the following. Think about the interconnectedness of the Arctic ice. What happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. It's impacting the rest of the planet. The Arctic is the air conditioner for the world and it's breaking down. Now, I think that that is quite a premonitory statement. Um, I, the case impacted me somehow and I analyzed it thoroughly with the idea that um, in the future, should there be a case, um, I had to get it right, if I ever had to uh, represent um, a case of this sort. Uh, and the opportunity arrived, as I will tell you uh, shortly. So if we go to the next, please. Now, this is not an international law case, but um, this case, uh, and I highlight the year 2015, <coughs> is, is the next, case that really grabbed attention. Uh, and, and, and it is a radical case in many ways. It failed uh, um, originally. It went on appeal to uh, Overlanders Gericht in Ham. Uh, it's the Luciano Yuya versus RWE. It is not against the state, it's against a private party. Uh, and it is ongoing, uh, but it has now gone on the merits. And something I want to highlight uh, concerning this case, we go to the next one, please, is that um, here they are attempting to get liability of greenhouse gas emitter for harms arising in a different jurisdiction. So this is a truly transboundary case. So it is about an entity, RWE, that is accused of uh, certain conduct, 
and the uh, impact of, of um, um, the harm, it is happening in Peru in, in the middle of the Andes, uh, where a glacier is melting uh, and the um, actual claimant uh, argues that um, it is melting because of the effect of climate change and RWE uh, is a main actor at an impact. Now, how the courts in Germany were going to deal with that is, it was a big question at the beginning, but they somehow have been doing it. Uh, and now um, um, there are two main questions that um, they want, they are going to determine whether uh, Luciano Yuya's home is threatened by flooding and mudslides as a result of the recent increase in the volume of the glacial lake located nearby, and how are WE's greenhouse gas emissions contributed to that risk? Uh, they have already, the court traveled to Peru to assess evidence, which is already procedurally speaking a major step for any court to do in, in a case of this, of this sort. Next, please. Now, another <laughs> precedent, as I would say, development that was rather crucial um, to shape the thinking I had towards this type of litigation is the uh, Inter-American Court on Human Rights Advisor Opinion 2023, uh, uh, which was delivered um, uh, at the end of 2017, but published on the 7th of February, 2018. Now, this is a key decision. It's not a contentious case. It is rather an advisor opinion, but it's an advisor opinion that basically constitutionalized uh, environmental law and, and human rights law for the Americas. Now, uh, the advisor opinion recognized the right to healthy environment as a fundamental right for the existence of humanity, something not other court had ever said so far at that point in time. Uh, and these are part of the right to life. Uh, the court further held that uh, environmental degradation and the adverse effects of climate change affect the effective enjoyment of human rights, including fundamentally the right to life. So this was a game changer, in, in my opinion. Um, and I wrote uh, uh, um, substantially about this particular advisory opinion. Um, and so uh, this is how we, we uh, next please we get eventually to the Torres Strait. Um, let me tell you a couple of things about um, uh, what has happened in between. So, so what changed from 2005 to 2015? Uh, and most importantly, what has changed further when I initiated this together with my client, client change, um, this uh, was in 2019 that we filed the case. But what changed? There were two major changes. One was obviously the Paris Agreement had been adopted. And because the Paris Agreement didn't have an enforcement mechanism, mitigation was, was going to uh, eventually start as, as a means to try to um, 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 implement the Paris Agreement commitment. Now, the second thing uh, that happened was uh, the advice of opinion number 23. So these are the two, in my opinion, big uh, um, events that took place and that made the difference between the Emix case and the Torres Strait case. Now, some remarks. Uh, in 2015, uh, Philip Sands gave a, a talk at the Supreme Court in, in in England, 
Uh, the topic was climate change mitigation. Uh, and he uh, uh, advanced, uh, in particular, a, um, a position that um, it was unlikely to, uh, that um, courts of a specific jurisdiction, such as human rights courts, or, or courts that oversee the implementation of a particular treaty, uh, were unlikely to contribute in a material way to a broader response in climate change challenges. And he considered at a time that only a court of general jurisdiction, such as the ICJ, could possibly deal with uh, an issue like climate change. And this was obviously coming from an influential uh, barrister and specialist in environmental law, more or less the, um, what uh, the majority probably saw. However, I, I felt radically differently. Um, I, um, in a conference in 2018 uh, on a small estate, uh, I attended as a speaker, and I presented the following topic on melting glaciers disappearing <coughs> estates and endangered populations, international dispute resolution for climate change. Now, my key submission um, at the conference was that uh, contrary to the assumption I just have um, um, tell, told you about uh, um, the uh, Court of Limited Jurisdiction, my view was that international human rights organs not only would be adjudicating climate change claims, um, but argue that they were equipped to do so under international human rights treaties. And I gave as example, uh, the Human Rights Committee in particular, and its potential role in interpreting the International Cabinet on Civil and Political Rights. I, I, I explain in what manner, um, within the public, just like you are attending, there were uh, some lawyers for client Earth. Um, they spoke to me, they instructed me shortly after in what became the first case, uh, successful case uh, on climate change before the Human Rights Committee. Uh, so <clears throat> the Torres Strait uh, is a belt of sea which lies between Papua New Guinea, uh, so to the north uh, of mainland Australia to the south. So it, it joins the Arafura Sea to the west with the Coral Sea to the east, and the region is part of Australia. The sea and land management strategy describes the unique environment of the region and the culture of the people who live in the Torres Strait, as well as the history and nature of the occupation of the Strait. So the, uh, my clients live actually in Masic Island, Boiru, Guarabur, and Puruma. Now, uh, some points to, to bear in mind before I go into um, what are the key issues uh, in the case. At the time that the case was filed, at the time that I had to work uh, preparing the pleadings, et cetera, no, there wasn't a blueprint um, to do a human rights uh, climate change case. Um, I studied the um, Inuit case, and uh, I wouldn't say I cracked the code, but basically I tried to understand why this case had not worked, what was wrong with argumentation and where I had to strengthen um, a, a arguments in order to be successful before, before a uh, human rights organ. So um, we didn't have uh, also the Ugenda Supreme Court case that you may be aware uh, it was decided uh, uh, later. Number two, 
this was a case of territorial jurisdiction, so square territorial jurisdiction. It was not a case, it was not a transboundary case like the Yuya case. This was a, a case where those who were alleging the harm live in the, in the territorial jurisdiction of the state that was being sued. Three, this was a case that did not have domestic remedies. So you know that there's a number of uh, rules of admissibility uh, and one of them is uh, the need to exhaust domestic remedies. But in this particular case, there were simply no domestic remedies to exhaust. Now that is uh, quite a bold assertion. Um, uh, but after examining uh, the domestic legal system in Australia, it was clear to me that uh, there were simply no domestic remedies to exhaust. Um, in fact, uh, the state um, uh, didn't challenge that uh, position uh, in a way uh, admitting that uh, there were simply no remedies in Australia for <laughs> breaches of the ICCPR of the nature we, we were um, alleging. So that means a lot uh, because uh, we basically didn't have uh, admissibility harbors. Uh, and the case could progress onto the merits. Uh, there were uh, other types of admissibility issues raised by the state, but they were of a different nature, somehow mixing with the merits themselves. Now, the, the, the analysis I'm going to deliver um, are being made uh, from a generalist public international law specialist. So I um, think it's quite important to remark because what has been crucial in this litigation is not human rights specialism, in my opinion. It's been to properly understanding how different areas of the law within public international law connect. So, in a landmark decision, uh, the Human Rights Committee found that Australia uh, failed to adequately protect indigenous Torres Strait Islanders against adverse impacts of climate change was a breach of international cabinet on civil and political rights. This was in September, just on the 22nd. So it's, very, it's a very fresh decision. Now the complaint, the complaint was brought by um, eight um, uh, inhabitants of um, the Torres Strait in different islands, as I mentioned, and also uh, some of them uh, on behalf of their children. Um, now, they belong to the indigenous minority group of the Torres Strait Islands in Australia, and they live in, 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 in Boigo, Massif, Warabur, and Poruma. Now, they denounced that the sea level rise was causing flooding and erosion on the Osos Islands and higher temperature and ocean acidification, um, that there was coral bleaching, a reef death, and the decline of uh, seagrass beds and other nutritional and cultural important marine species for them. Um, they told me that basically they couldn't tell the seasons anymore. And we are talking about um, people that whose lives were always punctuated by seasons. Now, this is a very similar parallel with Inuits that were losing their ability to predict the weather and they were losing their ability to um, move and, and do the things they did uh, at certain points in time because they couldn't recognize the land and they couldn't recognize any more resistance. Now, um, 
the Torres Strait Islanders argue that Australia had violated the rights under Article um, 1627 and um, also 24, which is the rights of the child, right alone and in conjunction, so interdependent. Well, now they denounced that the state party had failed to adopt uh, adaptation measures, uh, for example, infrastructure to protect the author's lives, way of life, homes, and culture against the impact of climate change, especially sea level rise, and to adopt mitigation measures to reduce greenhouse emissions and, and seed promotion of fossil fuel extraction and use, which continue to affect the authors and other um, Icelanders endangering their livelihood, resulting in the violation of the rights under Article 6 of the Cabinet. Uh, now, um, as, as it was mentioned, this was the first legal action brought by climate vulnerable inhabitants of law um, lying islands against a sovereign state. And the decision has been grounding and groundbreaking uh, on several, in several ways. Um, I would say that um, the recognition that the authors, uh, indigenous peoples, are among those who are extremely vulnerable to intensely experiencing severely disruptive climate change impacts is already a vindication from uh, the experience that the Indians had. So this is the first case where it recognizes um, that actually climate change effects can constitute a breach of the um, international cabinet of civil and political rights. Now, there are seven points that I want to make. Um, the first is that um, the myth that failure to address climate change impacts cannot be attributable to a state has been dispelled. Um, now, the committee rejected the argument by Australia that climate change was a global phenomenon and therefore uh, it couldn't have responsible. So, this was attributable to the actions of, of all states combined, and, and, and you couldn't really individually held one state responsible. Now, citing Benoit Mayer and Alexander Saha uh, debating climate, uh, climate law, and then Fanny Thornton, um, the absurdity of relying on human rights law to go after emitters, Australia attempted to support this position, asserting that academic scholars have noted that causal pathways involving anthropogenic climate change and especially its impacts are intricate and diffuse, and that human rights law could not actually address the depth and breadth of the causes and impacts of climate change. So the committee rejected that central argument uh, of Australia. It found that the state can be held responsible for its own acts and omissions. And in this particular case, the committee observed in addition that the information provided by both parties indicates that the state party is and has been in recent decades among the countries in which large amounts of greenhouse gas emissions have been produced. The committee also notes that the state party ranks high on world economic and human development indicators. So indeed the, the authors have identified specific acts and omissions that were attributable to the state. So this was not an abstract Rely, they were not relying on abstract arguments, but rather painstakingly lists of acts and omissions. So they argue that those acts and omissions have already uh, and will continue to impair their rights in ways that will worsen over time because of the latent and irreversible nature of climate change. Now, they also argue that the protection of the right to life requires the state to review their energy policies and prevent the dangerous emissions of greenhouse, greenhouse gases. 
I'll, I'll say more about this particular point that they raised. Now, a second big topic um, uh, on, on the case is the fact that uh, binding environmental treaties uh, are now clearly they were upheld by the Human Rights Committee to be relevant to the interpretation of human rights in the context of climate change mitigation. So this is, this was a, a straight treat interpretation point that I raised, which basically was um, you don't interpret a treaty in isolation um, and benefited from all the work of the International Law Commission, uh, particularly on fragmentation. Um, and asserted that you interpret the treaty within its uh, normative environment. And this was the position that won. It's quite significant because this is where the Paris Agreement enters to play a role, if any, in interpretation of a human rights treaty. Uh, uh, we argue that it was relevant to the interpretation of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, uh, Australia argued that it was not relevant that uh, you couldn't do that also. Uh, the committee um, decided that it was relevant. Accepted uh, on the one hand, obviously, that international agreements um, are, re are relevant for interpretation of human rights obligations under this, the ICPPR. Um, the invocation of an international treaty other than the ICPPR was just for the purpose of interpretation and not claiming a direct breach of the Paris Agreement. Uh, a third um, argument, climate change, no mere future impact. One of the big issues in the case was whether um, the threat, the real threat, was really going to happen in 10, 15 years and not now. So the position of Australia was this is all future uh, violations. It is not about violations that are happening now. Um, but the authors argue uh, that this actually contradicted uh, the evidence that uh, the state itself had, uh, so the state offices uh, had in connection to what was going on in the Torres Strait. Um, the state has already violated its duty to avert devastating and future irreversible impacts on rights protected by the cabinet, including impacts caused by existing greenhouse gas emissions protective measures must be initiated today. Um, climate change is a slow onset process that a state party may violate its obligations before the worst effects occur. This was the um, position advanced by, by my clients. So here I'd like to point out that there has to be a key distinction between a violation of a primary obligation and the effects of that. Now, this, in fact, comes even from, you know, traditional uh, environmental law litigation. Uh, I've been acting for a company on, on, on a case, and, and something, this is a torts case, completely, you know, English court. Uh, and one of the clear things was, for example, I don't know when it's spill in, in, in certain circumstances, um, um, uh, the spill may happen at one point in time, the effects may come many years later. And this is, you know, something that the law even considers for limitations issues. So. The same really applies in, 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 in when it comes to environmental harm of a different nature. And here I would argue that it happens in the case of uh, emissions. Now, this key distinction uh, was not uh, perceived, I would say, <laughs> not always perceived so clearly by everybody. Um, and I think it is part, it's of paramount importance in this type of litigation. Now, um, 
I mentioned that um, the um, um, state had already um, analyzed their own situation in, in Torres Straits. Um, and this was quite crucial because um, they themselves had assessed, or state organs had assessed that there was uh, an ongoing humanitarian crisis, human rights crisis, as they put it, because of the climate change impact. In fact, the territory um, in Torres Straits is so sensitive to sea level rise that 20 centimeters of sea level rise will actually be it for, for, for this island. Now, the author submitted that the state party, party erred in asserting that the adverse effects of climate change have yet to be suffered. And it was affirmed that authors' claims were based both on current violations and imminent threat of violations. Among those severe impacts from climate change that already they were already experiencing were flooding and inundation of villages, flooding and inundation of ancestral burial lands, lost by erosion of the traditional lands, including plantations and trees, destruction and withering of traditional gardens, ocean acidification, reduced ability to practice the traditional culture and pass it on to the next generation. They were experiencing anxiety and distress. Um, some of the houses had been destroyed because of the sea uh, level rise. And, and they were, um, I mean, the, the list was just endless of, of all the impacts currently uh, taking place. Uh, one of the authors described quite, uh, vividly that uh, his island was changing shape and it was rotating clockwise. Well, honestly, at that point when I read this, I couldn't really quite figure how this could be. But I, I visited the island of um, um, Light in, in, in Germany. And when I was there, I, I understood how um, um, the sand is not stable and how, uh, for example, there they, they have, you know, for 50 years they've managed to stabilize the, the sand, but literally also in, in, in the island of, of Zul, it was it was going clockwise, it was ch changing of direction, it was moving, so to say. Uh, a different point, positive obligations and due diligence. This is also another, um, oh, sorry, let me just finish with what the committee accepted here. So the committee said the authors presented in their communication information indicating the existence of real predicaments. They have personally and actually experienced owing to disruptive climate events and slow onset processes such as flooding and erosion. The authors argue in part that those predicaments have already compromised their ability to maintain their livelihood, subsistence and culture. This was a very important um, I say, um, uh, um, um, holding by the committee because so the facts were acknowledged as true. Uh, the vulnerability was also uh, acknowledged uh, in that sense. Moving on to the next point positive obligations and due diligence. Another key aspect of the decision pertains to the notion of positive obligations. Uh, the state argued that positive obligations under the cabinet do not require maximum possible resources, nor higher possible ambition. To adopt such an unprecedented test would not only place an impossible burden on the state, but would also displace reasonable policy choices made in good faith by the states as they assess a range of threats and challenges that impact on the enjoyment of human rights under the cabinet and decide how to distribute limited resources to address them. And it's also argued that it would be 
inappropriate and unfounded for the committee to interpret the cabinet in such a way as to allow it to remake the informed good faith and difficult policy decisions of a democratically elected government that inherently involve compromises, trade-offs, and the allocation of limited resources across the range of challenges to the fulfillment of uh, uh, human rights. Please urge the committee to adopt an unduly broad interpretation of a positive obligation. Now, in the concurring opinion of member Gentian Duberi, he uh, stated the following. The states are under a positive obligation to take all appropriate measures to ensure the protection of human rights. In this context, the due diligence standard requires the states to set their national climate mitigation targets at the level of their highest possible ambition and to pursue effective domestic mitigation measures with the aim of achieving those targets. When a state is found not to have fulfilled these commitments, such a finding should constitute grounds for satisfaction for the complainants, while the state concerned should be required to step up its efforts and prevent similar violations in the future. He actually said something else that I find quite crucial, and it was that since it is the atmospheric accumulation of CO2 and other GHGs that over time gives rise to global warming and climate change, a state should act with due diligence when taking mitigation and adaptation action based on the best science. This is an individual responsibility of the state relative to the risk at the stake and its capacity to address it. A higher standard of due diligence applies in respect of those states which significant total, with significant total emissions or very high per capita emissions, whether these are past or current emissions, given the greater burden that their emissions place on the global climate system. So while the majority didn't refer to these points specifically, the author's uncontested statement that the highest court in Australia had ruled that the state organ should not own a duty of care for failing to regulate environmental harm was one of the reasons why the committee found the case admissible. So in other words, there is an obligation of due diligence, there is an obligation of duty of care. Um, uh, and uh, you could infer that from, from, from the point that the point that was not available to them in the domestic system allow for the international system to examine the case. An additional point, individual indigenous peoples' rights and climate change. This is a major win for indigenous peoples, considering that the Human Rights Committee jurisprudence has not been extremely good in that aspect, to say the least. Um, this is one of the most important cases that the committee has produced on indigenous peoples' rights. Um, it vindicates uh, indigenous people's rights, and as you can see, it vindicates them even um, uh, from, from, from similar claims in other systems, like the one uh, in the commission I just referred shortly ago. Um, so um, on Article 7, 17, uh, which is the protection of home, um, it was acknowledged that the, the, the home of one of the authors, for example, was destroyed by flooding in 2010, and that they also depended on fish. So this is, this is quite important, is how home is also construed. It's not just the house where you live. In this case, it was broader, it was, was, was the island itself, it was, was where you are aboding and what you consider your ancestral land. Um, so 
They also depended on fish, maritime resources, land crops, trees for the systems and livelihoods, and depend on the on the health of their surrounding ecosystems for the own for their own well-being. This is what the committee acknowledged. And consider that the aforementioned elements constitute components of the traditional indigenous way of life of the authors who enjoy a special relationship with their territory, and that these elements can be considered to fall under the scope of Article 17 of the Cabinet. I really highlight this because, as you can see, it's not just the territorial land, it's territorial waters that are also entered into this analysis. And I think this is going to be, and I will come back to my conclusion, quite crucial because there has already been accepted there were all, all these impacts like, like ocean acidification impacting on the species that you could find at a certain point in time. So all of this could potentially be extremely useful for a tribunal such as ITLO in, for example, assessing potentially um, you know, a complaint or, or, or also an advisory opinion on, on climate change and unclosed. Uh, uh, so the committee made a number of important considerations concerning Article 27, uh, and um, they really uh, decided in favor of uh, the indigenous peoples to, to maintain their ability to, to live the, the traditional ways and to transmit to their children and future generations their culture and traditions and use of land and sea resources and that this all disclosed a violation of the state party's positive obligation to protect the author's right to enjoy the minority culture. So here we are seeing again the point of positive obligation. Um, and again, the uh, standard of care is due diligence. And why they failed on this standard of care? Because their own state agencies had already flagged that there was going to be a human rights crisis in the Torres Strait, and yet they did nothing. And delays was considered as part of um, the wrongful acts in a way. So, so it was not at all, uh, it didn't help the state. So this really shows you that to be within the legal framework, you ought to act promptly. Um, so delays will make you already be accountable or be held liable for. Moving on from that, right to a life with dignity. This is a, this is a very um, key, uh, was a very key submission in, in, in the case. The committee started with recalling a fantastic uh, general comment number 36, where um, they, for example, uh, uh, held that the obligation of the state parties to respect and ensure the right to life extends to reasonably foreseeable threats of life-threatening situations that can result in loss of life. So they did acknowledge that uh, back in 2018 for general comment number 36. Um, and they also included um, that, that those threats may include adverse climate change impacts. But having said all of that, they unconvincingly avoided the inherent contradiction of finding a violation of Article 27 and 17 in this case, but not of Article 6. Because how can indigenous people possibly have a life with dignity when their culture accepted by the committee and their existence as a group is threatened by, by climate change to the extent described by the authors in the case. Um, so this really gave rise to a number of separate opinions. Um, committee member Lucky Mufumasa found that there had been a violation of Article 6 and stated that the state party is tasked with an obligation to prevent a foreseeable loss of life um, for the impact of climate change. I'm going to discuss briefly what foreseeable means uh, in my conclusions, but this is quite important term. 
Now, the joint opinion by committee members Arif Bukhan, Marcia Akran, and Vaslika Sassin, partially dissenting, found the violation of the right to life, and they critically noted using the real and foreseeable risk standard, the majority opinion requires, requires adverse health impacts. Now, this is wrong. I mean, this is the, the joint, the joint, the partially dissenting uh, committee members didn't agree with that. They said that. Uh, that the majority was requiring adverse health impact to demonstrate an Article 6 violation. Um, but they, they found wrong that it was wrong. Uh, now, in my view, uh, the joint opinion is right. And the majority view reflects a confusion between obligations under Article 6 and their breach and the effects of the violation of the primary uh, obligations. Uh, but most importantly, uh, it is a lack of understanding of the meaning of life. So they were persuaded that, that the environment that was sustaining the life of all these people in the island was collapsing. And yet they were they, they wanted to see a, 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 they, they, they couldn't construe the world real, the world imminent, and the world possibility in the correct manner, as um, the Supreme Court in the um, in Netherlands case did Eugenia. And I'm going to go to that very quickly uh, when I wrap up. Now, the um, <clears throat> one of the things that I would highlight here is that what is foreseeable is also not, uh, what is imminent is not construed in terms of temporality. It's not about issue of time. Not about it's in 10 or 15 years that the island is no longer there. Uh, the, the issue of how you construe imminence is about um, how real this is it and how direct it is for the people that are arguing the impact. So it is not a temporality notion, it's a notion of reality, as a notion of how direct that threat is, 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 is against you. And in this particular case, everything had been. Um, demonstrated in terms of how real the threat was. Um, at the moment that that becomes real, the duty to act diligently um, triggers, comes about. Uh, the joint opinion added, while we agree that the state party is not solely responsible for climate change, the main question before the committee is significantly narrower. Has the state party violated the cabinet by failing to implement adaptation and or mitigation measures to combat adverse climate change impact within its territory resulting in harms to the authors? The majority opinion relies on projects initiated by a state since 2019, when the state, as soon as they were sued, a year later, they run to try to put together some money for seawalls. And in a way, um, hoping, it was good that they did so. Um, but in a way, uh, they, they, with that, they were trying to see, well, this is it. We are already doing what we have to do. Now, the majority opinion relies on those projects. While these measures help build climate change resilience, the majority does not sufficiently consider the violations of Article 6 that had already occurred at the time of filing this communication. That is the failure to fulfill commitments, obligations under Article 6 to protect Article 6. Legal consequences. And this is the last point I make before my conclusion. 
In practical terms, uh, however, it didn't matter whether we got there via the gate of the right to life or via the gate of Article 17 and 27. The obligation to take mitigation measures is a legal consequence of the both findings, I would argue. And the reason for that is because the committee accepted that the Torres Strait Islanders bringing the complaint are entitled to full reparation. The meaning of what full reparation uh, entails is defined by international law. The committee referred to uh, compensation, which is a precedent now uh, within the notion of loss and damage. Uh, this is connected, though, to the fact that the state knew. So this is very important knowledge. Now, this falls within the, um, also uh, the, the committee uh, crucially stated that the state part is also under an obligation to take steps to prevent similar violations in the future. Now, this falls, I would argue, within the scope of guarantees of non-repetition. And it can only be achieved by adequate mitigation measures. This is, it doesn't matter how, you know, what you do if, 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 if the emissions are uh, continuing in the manner they are. So the committee gave, um, I would say this is an important legal consequence arising from the findings of the committee, which now has to be implemented. Um, the concurrent opinion of Sigari um, points out that this as well. And, if you read that, you can see that uh, he also points out that these duties are somehow implicit in, 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 the, in the decision of the majority. Now, the committee gave the state 180 days to report on the measures taken to implement this decision, which started when this was notified to us. Now, I uh, want to make perhaps some, some final conclusions of this, maybe focusing on the way forward, or where the things that need to be I mean, they're big achievements, but there are also things that need for the future to be clarified. Uh, so let me first talk about the issue of imminence. Um, so this has to be corrected. Uh, the right to life issue is you know, messy in the decision, and this has to be addressed. Uh, it's possible that it's required. I mean, Sigari is a generalist, uh, and he got it. Maybe a, a, a court uh, that has a bench with more generalists may be able to engage in a better um, Decision. But on the other hand, you had the agenda Supreme Court case where, you know, these are domestic uh, court uh, judges that never the, nevertheless got it right. Um, why? Because um, this is quoting about, um, about that decision. The term immediate does not refer to imminence in the sense that the risk must materialize within a short period of time, but rather that the risk in question is directly threatening the persons involved. The protection of Article 2, the European Court of Human Rights, also requires risks that may only materialize in the longer term. And, and this was the position we advanced. The joint uh, um, uh, um, um, separate opinion um, saw it, the majority didn't. But sometimes, uh, you know, it's quite unusual when you have so many um, disagreements with the majority. When you have them, is because, you know, there's an issue there, perhaps. That has to be looked again for the future in, in future cases. Now, on the issue of due diligence, again, I think that this is going to be uh, it's quite an important standard that is already becoming clearer, and this case is contributing to that. The, the Heathrow extension case, for example, in, in the UK, the Supreme Court decision, in that case, that was completely missed. So, um, also, uh, he's here, it's quite clear in this case that a state owned obligations. Uh, climate obligations, let's say, towards its own, their own inhabitants. I mean, in the Heathrow case, 
somehow the UK just kind of say, you know, it's not an incorporated treaty. So uh, talking about the Paris Agreement. And so, so in a way, kind of thinking this is not important for the UK uh, uh, inhabitants. Uh, but really, there is an obligation, human rights connected to, uh, on emissions towards your own population anyway. So it's not just a transboundary issue, uh, but it's also an issue that will affect your own people. Um, and this has to be obviously this is this is not in the UK in that case that uh, this is this is you know the Paris Agreement doesn't really uh, entail any obligation of result of course no but now we are seeing that what entails is an obligation of conduct an obligation to our best effort of due diligence and to do that with the best available science so um, definitely this is going to be a, a point that uh, will continue uh, being referred to in cases and now we can see how relevant this is see, this is it for uh, human rights obligations. Um, obligations to provide remedy. Now it's clear that states have that obligation in this context of climate change. Um, and so domestic systems should run if they don't have to do so unless they want to be sued in international systems. Uh, positive obligation to protection, yes, you can be sued for not following that approach. Criticisms, a couple of them just to close. Um, this case took about four years to litigate from 2019 to 22. It's a long period of time. I think that procedurally speaking, uh, systems should uh, deal with this uh, emergency in a different manner. I think that uh, the European Court has taken a better approach than the Human Rights Committee did in actually prioritizing these type of cases. And I think that that is the correct approach. Um, another point that uh, they probably didn't get right, and I think that it needs to be corrected, is the issue of rights being inherently interdependent. That's quite crucial to understand how the dynamics of rights play in a case like this one. Uh, and the Human Rights Committee, quite astonishingly, uh, didn't actually see that interdependence and the connections between right to life, um, you know, um, right to, to protection of home, uh, and rather prefer a separate analysis, which really goes contrary to, to you know, the most basic, uh, uh, in my view, uh, position when it comes to analysis of human rights. Um, so uh, finally, I, I say that this case uh, potentially uh, can be very helpful for even other international law cases. Um, and I said not only for territorial um, jurisdiction cases that are currently before the European Court of Human Rights, but I would say that possibly uh, before the ICJ advisory opinion that is on the pipeline, clearly also um, likely to be very important uh, uh, on a potential case before ITLOS for the reasons that I mentioned briefly. So we have a, we have a number of, of, of reasons why to be hopeful of the standards that has been discussed, perhaps not. Uh, you know, the full way that a council I would have liked, but certainly be uh, providing an amazing win for the Torres Strait uh, Islanders. And I'd like to finish with a quote from them, um, uh, if I if I may, am I still in time to do that? So this is, this is Keith Pavai, and he said, back then, seasons are really important to our culture because they tell us how we live and what we catch at different times. They link to the four winds that we have on the island that comes at different times of year. The winds bring different species for hunting, fishing, harvesting. They are like the patterns that shape life in Volvo. We as people are so connected to everything around us. 
The island is what makes us. It gives us our identity. We know everything about the environment on this island, the land, the sea, the plants, the winds, the stars, the seasons. The island makes us who we are. Our whole life comes from the island and the nature here, the environment. It is a spiritual connection. We know how to hunt and fish from this island to survive here. We get that from generations of knowledge that has been passed down to us. I know very every species of plant, animal, wind on this island, the way the vegetation changes, what to harvest at different times of the year. Now you cannot predict the seasons. This is really what outraged me when, when, I, when, when I read these, these uh, statements. If, and if I go to Samuel uh, Panadeca and Jesse Mosby, our ancient culture, one of the oldest living cultures in the world, is threatened. Historically, we as Torres Strait Islanders have had our land and resources taken and our sacred sites destroyed. I feel as if we are neglected and our sacred sites threatened again. I will probably be alive to see my children not having anything. When they are adults, they will not have anything for their children. We will be living on another man's land. That is when, when my identity, the, the Masik Gilgal identity will die. I know a lot to teach my children, but I cannot teach my children about their inheritance on another man's land. It won't have the sacredness and the power of our culture. Our land is a string connecting us to our culture. It ties us to who we are. If we were to have to move, we would be like helium balloons disconnected from our culture. Our culture will become extinct. We are a dying race of people. This was the, the way they put their stories forward. Um, and this case now has vindicated they were right, and then they actually need the protection of the state. And we are going to obviously uh, do our utmost to ensure this, this uh, decision, which in a way has already been put in, 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 in um, uh, the, the state action actually started immediately a year after this case was filed. So the efforts of this, in a way, didn't come isolated. You have seen the route, and I have shared with you the route. Uh, it took a lot of processing and thinking already from the moment when the units failed. And I wanted to understand why did the units fail? And I, I want to dedicate the work, I think, on this case to them and the efforts that Sheila made, which perhaps didn't uh, were not successful on the particular case um, back then, but which really were telling us very much what was going to happen. And I would say that I'd like you to go, all of you from this room, understanding really what imminence means, because any, any effects is not going to be like slow, it's going to be abrupt. And in a way, we are already perceiving that somehow. Um, so this is not just a, you know, a case and it's not just an academic exercise. This is unfortunately um, crucial for the survival of, of the world and, and our own survival. Thank you very much.